Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Mark Smith. Mark is the author of the Winter Trilogy, The Road to Winter, Wilder Country, which won the Indie Book Awards for, uh, for YA in 2018. And today, he's joining me to discuss his conclusion, Land of Fences. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to that land, land that was never ceded. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, and in the Great Conversations podcast, we have a chance to hear more of these discussions and connect with the books that you love. Final Draft's Great Conversations podcast is fast approaching its first birthday, only uh, a week or two now. In that time, we've put out more than 50 episodes of books, uh, authors, as well as bonuses featuring festival, awards, publishers, anything bookish, we'll, we'll love to talk about it. And I want to know which is your favorite. So vote with your ears. Go back and listen to your favorite episode or episodes if you want. And when the, uh, when the birthday comes around, I'm going to be talking about the books that you've loved and how they reflect on our literary culture. Now, the Winter Trilogy takes us into Australia's not-too-distant future, a world ravaged by disease and environmental change, where we travel alongside Finn. As Land of Fences opens, Finn is back in Angari with Cass and the summer has stretched out, lulling them back into a sense of peace. But the group are troubled by their memories and no more so than Finn. When suddenly the radio springs back to life, transmitting an emergency broadcast, could civilization be regrouping? But when the tracking chip in Cass's arm buzzes, it reminds them that civilization is not a boon for all. Join me as I speak with Mark Smith and discover the end, the final, the conclusion of the Winter Trilogy, Land of Fences. I'm really pleased to be welcoming Mark Smith on the line. Uh, You will be familiar with Mark. We've had several conversations around his winter trilogy, starting with The Road to Winter in 2016, Wilder Country we discussed a few years back. It won the Indie Book Award uh, for YA in 2018, and now the final of the trilogy, Land of Fences. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure, Andrew. It's great to be talking to you again. Yeah, now it's it's always sad when things are coming to an end. But before we get into that, I thought I'd just take a moment to kind of rediscover the Winter Trilogy. We're in Australia, it's our not-too-distant future, a world ravaged by disease and environmental change. And we've been travelling alongside Finn. Finn's surviving on the coast, he's the last person alive in his town, or so he, he thinks. Surfing and trapping food to live. But the arrival of... <laughs> I've I've stuffed this up straight away. I wrote in my notes the arrival of hope. It's actually the arrival of Rose. Shatters shatters his illusion of peace and opens his eyes to this brutal world where the wilders, groups of men controlling the countryside by by force and are enslaving Sileys, asylum seekers that are being denied their basic rights. And that's that's our road so far. But now as Land Defences opens... Finn's back in Angari with Cass, and the summer has kind of stretched out for them, and it's lulled them back into a, a sort of maybe a sense of peace. But the group, uh, they're troubled by their memories, no more so than Finn, who feels he'll come to regret allowing Benjamin Ramage, leader of the Wilders, to live. And then the radio springs back to life, transmitting an emergency broadcast. Could civilization be regrouping? But the chip in Cass's arm also starts buzzing, reminding them that civilization is not a boon for everyone. 
Oh, quite quite the beginning. This is all in the first chapter or so. And in, in the beginning of Land Defences, Mike, you remind us that there is this tension between what we call society and our ideas of freedom. Civilization doesn't come cheap, apparently, not uh, and not everyone can have it all. Do you feel like we're aware and engaging in this discussion in the world that we live in, these tensions between our society and our freedom? I think so, yeah. Um, I, and it's one of the... It's not the point of writing a, a, a novel like this, but it's certainly something that's in the back of my mind. Um, and particularly, uh, I was, you know, creating the, the sort of subgroup of the Siles. They're a slave class. Um, and just that idea of people's movements being tracked as well and how that affects their, their freedom. Uh, and the, the ability to be tracked, you know, like, mm. and that's something that they haven't been aware of up until this point. They have had trackers, but they were, um, as far as they knew, they weren't functioning anymore. But with society starting to reestablish itself, electricity is, is coming on board again, and silos are able to be tracked. So, yeah, definitely, um, I'm not trying to make a statement or anything like that, because particularly when you're writing YA, as soon as, as, soon as your young readers feel as though they're being preached to, they will turn off in droves. So mm. I am trying to make those points subtly, um, but um, I'm happy for them to be discussed as issues, particularly with these books being taught in schools now. Yeah, I, and that's the fantastic thing is the way this is going to engage with so many different audiences. I mean, I'm, I'm nowhere near YA myself, but I love these books, and I'm a very different audience to a teenage audience, but um, I couldn't help but being reminded of uh, you know, sort of the film trope, I think of films, uh, like if you cast your mind back to Pleasantville, where they present kind of that facade of 19, 1950s suburban yes. idol. Um, and the way that it, it is presented as being very, for want of a better word, whitewashed. And you, you have sort of almost a parody of that at one point in Land Defences, where there's a big question around who actually gets to enjoy this. And I really enjoyed the way you were engaging with with this idea that there are strictures around what we might have grown up thinking of as freedom and that not everyone is enjoying this. Absolutely. Um, and again, it's difficult to talk about this without giving away spoilers, but mm. there are some key moments in this novel where, uh, where Finn, as a freeborn young man, um, is forced to deal with this, these ideas of, of what it means to be free within a society and also um, for a society to operate um, it it almost you know almost needs to be stratified in a way, um, and unfortunately for Kaz, who is a Siley, that means that she's on the bottom rung of that mm. ladder, um, and she's and potentially never going to be able to escape that situation because of her birth, um, because of the fact that she came in through detention centres and and um, and and was part of that slave class. So um, I like the idea of of looking at sort of peeling away the layers of our society and seeing, well, is, is that actually true in the way that we live our lives now as well? And I, I, would like, I would like to think that my young readers are also able to not just see this as some sort of dystopian fantasy world, but to see elements of their own world within it. And you confront us right from the beginning with that sort of nightmare of Australian life, summer has to end. And, yeah. and summer, summer ends really for the group when they realise that they're, they're not as alone as they might hope they are. The group have to flee Angari. They're ultimately moving towards Wentworth, where a group of survivors have coalesced into this sort of semblance of normality. 
And from within the walls of the recovery, it sort of seems like there's this unexamined assumption that life should resume as much as possible as it once was. But for, from Finn and Cass's perspective particularly, this is untenable. How, how did you go about rebooting society and deciding what a rebooted society might look like? Yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting thing in terms of planning the novel and where, where I wanted to go with it because I, I didn't want it to be, you know, a complete resolution of the situation. I, mm. I did want it to be, um, I suppose, a realistic depiction of how a society would begin to rebuild itself and whether it could ever do that fairly. Mm. Um, there's one very pertinent quote in the novel, which happens early on, so it's not really giving anything away, but... Um, uh, you know, where, where Kaz said, you know, how can you expect this new society to be fair when it was never fair to begin with? Mm. Um, so they're rebuilding in the image of what they had before rather than attempting something completely new. Now, there's a real moral heart to all of the books in this trilogy, um, particularly for Finn, who's watched the brutality that he's, he's presented with this idea that it's necessary to maintain order from Ramage and the Wilders, and they're, they're really sort of committing atrocities across the countryside, to the Nolanders, who feel like their actions are justified out of survival, and even, and even on the farm, there's this idea that the threat of violence is law. And shearing here as close as I dare to spoilers, how did you feel inland defences pushing Finn closer and closer towards violence? Yeah, look, it's been his great moral dilemma through all three books because he has uh, he's seen the way the people around him, the, all the ones that you've mentioned, um, including Kaz and including the Sileys, mm. um, the way they have um, fallen to violence and, and been prepared to use violence. Um, Finn has, because of his upbringing, has never feel, felt comfortable with that. So, um, And yet, as you say, he's pushed to the brink. Um, and in the first two books... If people have read those, they'd be aware of some of the decisions that he's, that he's made that I'm, I'm sure would have frustrated readers at times because they want the classical hero who will act when he needs to in a particular in a particular <laughs> excuse me a particular way. But he he doesn't. You know, he in a lot of ways seems an antihero. Um, but in this final one, he's pushed towards it, and there's a particularly climactic scene um, where he uh, where it's not necessarily violence, but he has the opportunity. Um, to use violence if he wants to, um, and uh, you know, again, he's faced with that moral dilemma because it's, it affects the people around him that he loves. Mm, I actually love the way you you grappled with this, and I feel like I'd, I'd love for any listener who's who's eagerly to to pick me up on this. I think last time we spoke, I brought up the idea of of Batman and that that sort of heroic <laughs> journey where Batman's whole thing is that he doesn't kill, and so there's there's echoes of that in Finn. But of course, over almost a hundred years of history there's been that real problematizing of the idea of batman because he may have may have allowed death by a mission or it's just happened off it's happened off panel and i think we we shear very close to that sort of uh confrontation but you actually deal with it which i just loved yeah look um and that's a very in in terms of a a task as a a writer it's a very hard um, concept to get across mm. um, and I really think it was only possible because the the readers had been with Finn all the way through and, mm. and if they hadn't empathised him with him by that stage they're probably never going to um, but I think that they, hopefully they come to understand 
his response to that dilemma um, as being the right response. Mm. And even even though Finn questions it himself towards the end um, about whether he's actually being complicit or, complicit or not, um, and that's something, again, which is not necessarily... You, you can't resolve everything for your reader. There needs to be some things left in there, um, left for the reader to try and resolve for themselves. How do you find your younger readers are responding and engaging with you around these ideas of violence, which are, we might presume, so removed from their lives, but I think you know a, a casual glance at, at headlines will suggest that violence is there, even if it doesn't look like the violence that we're seeing in a post-apocalyptic-type future. Look, to be honest, it's, it's been one of the great joys of writing these texts has been, these books has been able to, uh, the road to winter in particular is now taught in schools all around Australia. So I get the opportunity to go into schools and engage with, with 14, 15, 16 year olds around these ideas. And they, they, um, I think they, even though, as you say, it's a little bit away from their own experience, um, it is, it's questioning a lot of those things that they do take for granted from a lot of the books and films and games that they play where mm. violence happens unquestioningly, you know, and, and they take that on board. But here it is actually being um, put into the hands of a, of a 16-year-old kid um, who has to grapple with it. So, um, and those, they're quite happy to engage on that level and they love... Um, engaging and, and questioning and arguing about what a particular character should have done at a particular time, um, which to me, is that, that's great. If they want to, you know, once, once you write a book and the book is out there, it's almost not yours anymore mm-hmm. um, because it's the, it's the reader's right to, to do with it as they will and to engage with it and to interpret it in the way that they will. And if they want to challenge me on that, I think that's fantastic. Now, a part of the moral heart is also the question of asylum seekers and their treatment. And since the series began, we've seen the situation here in Australia deteriorate, in, in my view, while the government, though, has hardened its stance. Now, in the winter future, Siley's a little more than slaves, and you introduce um, in Land Defences, and again, I'm shearing as close as I dare to spoilers, you introduce the idea that anyone might, in fact, be reclassified mm-hmm. as a Siley and stripped of their rights. Were you highlighting here just how arbitrary these classifications are and that in some way there is no way to abrogate someone's human rights? Uh, yes, um, definitely definitely moving towards that, that, uh, that point. Um, but I also think that there's something else there, and that is that, um, that it's almost making a point that, uh, you know, that society will subjugate people they need to subjugate people um, to maintain power. Yeah. Um, and who those people are is sometimes quite arbitrary. Um, and if that means that, you know, that, that uh, people are, in, in my terms, reclassified, um, then that's for the maintenance of power. That's what the society is prepared to do. Um, and, um, and we find out in land defences how that operates. And it's, it's, again, it's raising one of those questions about, oh, could this, you know, could this ever really happen? Mm. And of course, it's a dystopian world, it's a futuristic world. Um, but, uh, but if this is 20, 30 years into the future, I like the idea of taking an existing idea as it exists now and ratcheting it up two or three notches mm. to almost that point of being, oh, could that, could that actually happen? Would that be believable? Yeah, the um, ideas and, and axioms around philosophies of ends justifying means sort of spring to mind here. Um, I want to I lighten it a little bit because, of course, these books are incredibly enjoyable to read. And one, well, I think throughout the series, Finn's dog Rowdy has been 
both my, my probably one of my favourite characters, but he's also been a bit of a barometer of sorts for the overall welfare of the group. He's also just a beautiful animal. And if this isn't a strange question, how do you go about writing good animal characters? Uh, it's funny because Rowdy has literally taken on a life of his own, you know. Um, people engage on Instagram around Rowdy, you know, putting up photos of their dogs and could this is just what Rowdy looks like. And um, I, to, to be honest, Andrew, when I first wrote Rowdy into the plot, it was just as a companion for Finn. Um, it didn't seem real that he would be there on his own. Um, but then Rowdy started to take on a character of his own. And it is true, you do actually have to write that character. Um, but it's always in relation to the, the, you know, Kaz or Rose or Finn or whoever's around him at the time, and Ray in particular. So um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a dog lover myself. I have a, I have a beautiful dog, um, and I like that I, that idea of of there being a companion that your character can have that they they can engage with, but not necessarily on that human level of conversation. But it seemed, especially for a boy in that situation, to have a companion. Uh, was was really necessary as far as I was concerned. I've got questions that we're going to save for off mic because yep. Rowdy also, again, he is a barometer and it, it, so many things about what his story arc involves are spoilers. Um, of course, this is the conclusion of the trilogy that you started in The Road to Winter. Have you achieved all that you wanted through the books or is there is there still a little part of you on the beach somewhere in Angari? Uh <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I feel as though I've done as much as I can with the story, mm. and I've brought it to what I think is a is a reasonable conclusion, um, without tying all ends off completely neatly. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, as a writer too, I've been in that story now. I've been with those characters and living with those characters for four years. So um, I, I think I've done what I can for the time being. It doesn't mean that I won't revisit some part of it at some some stage in the future. Um, but also as a writer, you want to put new challenges in front of yourself and, and, and move on and, and write something different. I think you've said all everyone wants to hear there, Mark. You've, uh, <laughs> you've, you've dangled enough there that we can, we can hold a little bit of hope for however long we need to. I am speaking with Mark Smith and we are discussing Land Defences. It is the third, it is the final book in his The Road to Winter series. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful conclusion and we, we couldn't talk too much about so many things because as, as is the nature of conclusions, things conclude and we don't want to spoil them for you. But Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time today. That's a pleasure. Thanks very much. And I've really appreciated your interest over the whole trilogy. That's it for this great conversation with Mark Smith. Mark's new novel is Land Offences and it's out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Vinyl Draft 2 SER. And why not click subscribe in your podcast app? It means you'll get a great new, great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back with more Great Conversations next week. Till then, happy reading.